You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, April 3rd, 2023. Later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose hosted a conversation with Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. More in today's feature report. People need food to live, and there are so many barriers in place that stop people from accessing this thing that they need to exist. We're just trying to make sure people have access to food as a basic human right. That's Liz Barnhart from Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, a local food pantry that has grown into so much more as they fight to reduce Bloomington's 17% food insecurity rate. The national rate is 10.2%. More from Barnhart later in the show on a new episode of Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. But first, your daily headlines. The Monroe County Community School Board Corporation met on March 28th. During public comment, Riva Doliana asked the board to focus on safety at their schools in light of the most recent school shooting. Although I live in Brown County, I'm from Bloomington. I'm a proud 1962 Panther. And um, so I'll get the funny part over. And I have a grandson who teaches at Jackson Creek. I have little great-grandchildren that go to Rogers Elementary. I think this is a wonderful school system here. You know, this is about school safety, and we all know what happened yesterday. We hear about these horrible things all the time, and we could discuss all kinds of things. My main thing right now is, it was in December. I went to my little great-grandson, Gwen's uh, kindergarten school, and they, they made these little gingerbread houses. And uh, so when it was over, everybody was friendly and wonderful. I just, I thought, wonder why I'm not going out the front door. But I went down the hallway, and past the kindergarten and everything, and I go out the side door. I thought, well, wonder that what this sign says. It must say you can't come back in. No, it was about stop, you know, if you have COVID symptoms or something like that. I went back in to see if I could get back in, and I could. That upset me. I should have done said something before. I mean, I can use the excuse that I'm going to have a hip replacement. I got, no, I don't have an excuse. So I called yesterday. Wonderful people helped me, including Karen. And so I thought, well, I'm going to come here and speak up. Like I said, we can talk about all kinds of things. But I really think that we have to, I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, wait a minute, money for a school resource officer at each school or, or metal detectors. We don't have money for that. I don't know. I don't know. But something's got to be done. And to me, you know, we know this keeps happening because there are people that have mental illness and other problems. We don't know it all. But anyway, I want to address this because I think things have to change. Thank you very much. Next, Bloomington North High School student Sam Clark addressed the board about LGBTQ plus treatment in the schools. Uh, I appreciate you letting me speak up here today. I am Sam Clark. I'm a non-binary sophomore from Bloomington High School North. And I'm here to talk about a recent situation that occurred at North where a student put a litter box in a teacher's classroom and made posters saying that 
animal identifying students could use it. It's my understanding that this was a premeditated and teacher approved student experiment to see how false information spreads on social media, although I haven't seen the description or methodology or results of it, and I really would like to. Um, so for those who don't know, and this is from the Human Rights Campaign website, at least 20 extremist candidates and elected officials have claimed that schools are making litter boxes available for students who identify as cats. And this is a bizarre lie. Is it's meant to call it's meant to call into question school policies related to transgender non-binary youth. Not only did this situation continue to spread misinformation about the existence of litter boxes in schools at a time when LGBTQ plus students are being attacked in the state government, but as a direct result, transgender students at my school were harassed, meowed at, barked at, and more. This transgender, the transgender population has high rates of suicidal thoughts and self-harm. Events like this can directly result in triggering these things. The school and MCCSC are extremely lucky that as far as we know, nobody acted on any of these thoughts or feelings of self-harm. It was deeply disturbing to see this situation uh, occurring at my school in any form. Uh, and it was disturbing to see the spread of this false information backed by a teacher without any thought of what the aftermath could possibly be. But it happened and the aftermath is what we need to be concerned about now. It should be a basic expectation that teachers are at school to participate in the education and safety of their students. To have a teacher actively participate in this experiment and say that they did not know what the consequences would be shows an incomplete lack of understanding. Later, the board voted on a resolution to recommit to serve LGBTQIA students to ensure they have an inclusive, safe, and welcoming environment. Vice President of the Board, April Hennessy, spoke in support of the resolution. Just that, you know, it's it's been an incredibly disheartening and, and sort of heartbreaking week on so many fronts to see um, laws being passed, you know, here in our own state, but then nationally as well, that would discriminate against kids um, and and people for just sort of their very existence. Um, and so, you know, I'm really glad that we're doing this. And I, I heard comments earlier um, asking, you know, where do we draw our lines and how far do we go? I mean, I can only speak for myself. And, you know, we do have restrictions as as board members. We are sort of authority to to make decisions only go so far. But, um, you know, as someone who's affected by this personally as part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, just I just want our students and our staff to feel supported um, in in their sort of day to day. And so I hope that this is the first step to doing that. I know that we still have a lot of work to do um, to get to get there, but you know, we'll do what we can. The resolution passed unanimously. The next MCCSC board meeting will be held on April 25th. In today's feature report, environmental correspondent Zero Rose hosted a conversation with Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. Rose and Lindsay discuss the environmental attorney's background, early career, legal triumphs, and current court battles to secure civil rights for ecosystems by conferring personhood to aspects of nature under the law. We turn to Zero Rose for more. 
Joining us today is environmentalist and attorney Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, an organization committed to advancing the legal rights of nature and environmental rights. He is also co-founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and is widely recognized as the founder of the contemporary community rights and rights of nature movement, which have resulted in the adoption of several hundred laws across the United States and around the world. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Yeah, good to be with you, Zara. But for about 10 years, I practiced convention, what I refer to lovingly now as conventional traditional environmental law, which basically means trying to enforce this patchwork of regulations and laws that we have in the United States that ostensibly were adopted to protect the natural environment. And so for, for about a decade, I represented about 100 different community organizations across the state of Pennsylvania that were targeted for things like frack wastewater injection wells or uh, factory hog farms or toxic waste incinerators. You know, all the hundreds of different single issue projects that communities face off against every day in the United States and around the globe. And most of that work had me representing these groups in front of, you know, zoning hearing boards and administrative law judges and sometimes in federal court. But it was all trying to enforce these national environmental laws that most people think are there to actually protect the natural environment. But in reality, those laws actually operate just as negotiation zones for corporations to come in, basically shave some of the rough edges off whatever project they're considering a placement into that community, and then moving forward with the project anyway. And so even though we would win what I refer to as skirmishes on the, on the outside of some of these battles in terms of setbacks, you know, how many feet do you have to be back from a school if you're going to put in a factory farm? Uh, or parts per million, whatever you can emit into the air to the water as allowed or legalized by those federal and state environmental laws. We were basically in the trenches dealing with that kind of stuff. And after about 10 years of watching almost the complete failure of those federal and state environmental laws provide any kind of protection whatsoever for the communities that we were representing, that we decided to, to switch gears and do something else because it seems that the conventional traditional environmental law today is really about battling over those parts per million, how much a community is gonna get poisoned or polluted, not whether they're going to get poisoned or polluted at all. And so we came kind of to our own understanding of how the industry, the environmental legal industry is set up, who it actually serves, and uh, started to try to do something different other than do that work. So that's kind of a, how I ended up in the, in the work that we do today. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people do have that blind trust in these supposed agencies that ostensibly are looking out for us. But things like the Flint, Michigan problem with their water has made it a little more conscious to people that it's not necessarily a, a bulwark to count on. Absolutely. I think in some ways it's natural that people rely on agency regulators and in fact, their own elected officials to do stuff to help them because that's our model of representative democracy is that we hire the best people. I mean, that's the myth. You know, we hire them through elections and agency regulators are supposed to be looking out for the communities themselves. But the real clients generally, or should I put it this way, that the laws underneath which those agencies operate are generally written by the largest corporations in the biggest industries in the United States. 
because at the table, you know, you don't have communities sitting at the table when these regulations get negotiated or the laws controlling what the regulations do. And so it's kind of a farce to believe that we have anything close to a democratic system operating when the largest actors around the table at the legislature are, you know, chemical waste management and, uh, you know, uh, gas companies and uh, other agribusiness corporations like Smithville Foods or Hatfield Foods. Those are the folks that you have continuously in that cycle who are writing the laws underneath which we operate. And then we as kind of like subordinate little mice are running around trying to enforce those legal requirements that have been put in place by the very industries that we're attempting to fight. So it kind of shouldn't come as a surprise, I think, to most that things are worse now from an environmental perspective than things were 40 years ago when the major environmental laws were passed, simply because we're not at the controls. We're not driving anything. We're on the receiving end. And so everything we do is defensive. And anybody that plays plays chess or any other strategic game knows that if you're always on the defensive, you're going to lose. And unfortunately, when we lose, our communities lose with us as well as the natural environment. Do you want to say anything about some of the earliest cases, things to do with standing in, in court or personhood for non-human entities? Yeah, so as, as folks and communities have been pushing back on this concept of being controlled, basically, by this higher system of law that replaces their values with the values of the industry leaders who are seeking to do X, Y, and Z in their community, there, there came a similar recognition that, that not only are we controlled as human beings to protect our own rights, so if we take steps to protect our own health, safety, and welfare and other rights like to sustainable agriculture and other things that we feel that we have, but that also that nature itself under this system of law that we have is, is basically treated as property, that you can buy and sell ecosystems. We, we don't think about it that way a lot of times. We think about you know a five-acre piece of land that we own, but that five-acre piece of land has ecosystems on it that don't just begin and end at those uh, parcel uh, edges either. And so nature has been treated as property under this Western system of law that we have for, for thousands of years. It's the bedrock of this system of law that people have rights, nature is property. And of course, we all remember that women used to be property and African-Americans used to be property in the 1800s uh, and still to some extent today with the remnants of those systems. But that this concept that nature is property means that the more nature you own, the more you can legally destroy. So, you know, what you learn in law school and folks know as well is that uh, property ownership is a bundle of sticks. And one of the sticks in that bundle is the right to destroy whatever you own. That's part of ownership. In addition to excluding others from using it, one of the, one of the sticks is to you can destroy the property that you have legally. And so in the U.S., we've tried to build an environmental protection system based on this property ownership view of nature and ecosystems. And I think the most exciting work happening in the U.S. and in fact around the world right now is this rights of nature concept that nature itself, ecosystems, rivers, forests, mountains should actually have rights of their own. And it kind of bends our brains sometimes to think about nature having rights because we're used to you know, the, the U.S. Bill of Rights, which recognizes free speech rights and right to practice religion of our choice and other rights contained within that U.S. Constitution Bill of Rights. In addition, all of our states have a Bill of Rights 
we sometimes forget that too, but those Bill of Rights and the US Constitution Bill of Rights are all based on human rights, uh, that rights accrue to us as people, as persons, just by fact of being human. Uh, when we think about rights of nature, we're actually talking about transforming nature from being rightless as property under the system that we have now to being rights-bearing, almost a civil rights-type protections for nature. So what would it look like if a river had a right to flow? Would that mean that damming the river is illegal uh, because it violates the right of the river to flow? What does it mean for the, the right of a uh, forest to exist and flourish? Kind of these constitutional standards. Does that mean that projects that would clear cut the forest or damage the ecosystem in other ways, would that make those activities illegal? And the answer is yes. It's basically a constraint on human activity by creating or recognizing rights for those natural systems or ecosystems. Just like with humans, if we have human rights, activities that happen that violate those rights, we have a legal solution to that, a remedy. Ideally, it doesn't always happen this way, of course, but when someone violates your rights, you can go into court uh, if you have the means uh, and sue to actually enforce those rights. What this rights of nature movement is talking about is basically that nature ecosystems would have certain rights. They're not the same rights as humans. Obviously, free speech doesn't apply or equal protection or due process. Those are human concepts or the right to vote. But concepts like the right to exist, kind of like a right to life for an ecosystem, a right to flourish, a right to thrive, uh, a right to restore itself in case there's a damage, uh, human-caused damage a right to restoration, uh, these, these types of remedies and types of rights that can be assigned or recognized on behalf of these ecosystems of nature. And the most exciting thing is that a lot of times we just talk about ideas, but this idea has come to fruition. And the fruition that it's come to uh, has been back in 2006, the first community in the U.S. passed a rights of nature law. It was a little place called Tamaqua Borough, just northwest of Philadelphia. It makes me feel old most days, but I actually wrote that law back in 2006. It was the first rights of nature law to be adopted by a municipality in the world, uh, recognizing that waterways within that community had certain rights to exist and flourish and be restored, those types of constitutionally based rights. And then to our surprise, I think that the model kind of morphed from that little community in Pennsylvania to Ecuador. And in Ecuador, we were called down to help with the drafting of the new Ecuadorian constitution. And it was the first time that this concept of rights of nature was written into a national constitution, which was then ratified by the people of Ecuador. There have now been a bunch of cases litigated, uh, the most famous one, I think, coming down only a couple months ago, which protected a, a forest preserve within Ecuador from mining permits uh, that had been issued that would violate the rights of that forest preserve to exist and thrive and the other standards that are within the Ecuadorian constitutional law. In addition to Ecuador, you have Bolivia that passed the rights of Mother Earth law. Uh, Panama recently signed a national law just a couple of weeks ago, uh, recognizing rights of nature in the country. It, it's going to come into effect after a year. That's how national legislation exists within Panama. There are courts in India, courts in Colombia. Uh, and uh, local laws being passed in places like Brazil, uh, as well as other countries. And in the U.S. today, uh, there are three dozen communities, both tribal governments, as well as municipal governments across the United States that have passed these rights of nature laws. 
I think it's the new kind of uh, trend. It's the emerging new environmental law paradigm that's eventually going to supplant or augment the existing environmental kind of regulatory patchwork that we have now that deals with nature as property. Up next, we have Activate on the WFHB Local News. In this episode, Liz Barnhart from Mother Hubbard's Cupboard talks about the fight to reduce Bloomington's 17% food insecurity rate. The national rate is just 10.2%. Activate features real people working for positive change in our community. This segment is in partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing getconnected at bloomington.in.gov. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Uh, my name is Liz Barnhart, and I am the Community Outreach Coordinator at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. The mission of Mother Hubbard's is to increase access to food in a way that cultivates dignity, autonomy, and community. So Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, which is we call the hub now, is a community food resource center. Most people know us for our pantry, which we do not require proof of income. You don't have to be a um, resident of Monroe County. You don't need any income qualifications. Um, so people can come in whenever they want, whenever they need. Um, there's no limit on how much people can take. We are a low barrier client choice food pantry. A lot of people think of us as just having a food pantry, but we have seven different programs right now. So we have um, a community garden, we have an education program which includes cooking classes and in-pantry demonstrations. Uh, we have a youth program, so that's youth cooking and youth gardening both happen once a week as well. Um, we have a tool share, so essentially like a big lending library of like cookbooks or gardening tools or cooking tools. Oh, we have our advocacy program. Um, so that's just addressing the root causes of why people need our services in the first place. Bloomington City has a 35% poverty rate, and that's people at the poverty line or below. We have a 17% food insecurity rate, which is higher than the state or the federal average. So uh, we're just trying to make sure people have access to food as a basic human right. When I moved to Bloomington, there was a like a little blurb on WFHB about how the hub needed interns. So I did an internship for a year in the garden program and I loved it. And then I stuck around and I did kids cook, volunteered for a while and finally they hired me. Uh, so that's your fault that I have this job. Um, but I guess, I don't know, I feel like I've always, ever since I was a little kid, had like this strong sense of justice. Like I remember 
being at daycare and like the big kids told us that we couldn't come up into like the treehouse. And I remember standing there and just like yelling at them until finally they like gave up and they're like, okay, you can come up there. I was always just like, that's not right. I'm going to do something about it. Um, <laughs> it's probably why I ended up at the hub. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm someone who has been food insecure. Um, I worked three jobs while putting myself through school and I didn't know that there were resources that could help me. People need food to live and there are so many barriers in place that stop people from accessing this thing that they need to exist. We have the highest rent in the state. $955 is the average rent in the city of Bloomington. Childcare is expensive, so expensive. I mean, the cost of groceries are rising. Like you have all of these factors that go into play that stop people from being able to access food that they need to just live. Yeah, so if you're interested in um, helping out or getting involved, one of the best things to do is to donate. Uh, we have a harvest team, which is about $25 a month, uh, which makes a pretty huge difference for a lot of the things that we do. Uh, we also take volunteers every week, so if you're interested in helping out in the pantry, um, it's two-hour shifts once per week. Yeah, if you're interested in donating, our website is mhcfoodpantry.org, so you can find links there for gardening, volunteering, donating. And if you just want to come see what we're doing, um, check out our Instagram and our Facebook. We have multiple programs every week, so it's a good way to check out the space and get to know us and uh, the people that we serve. Again, my name is Liz Barnhart from Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, where we believe access to healthy food is a basic human right. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Activate is produced by Chad Carruthers and Michelle Moss. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. 
Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 